Paramedic Insight podcast from the College of Paramedics. Data analysis and important topics from around the world of paramedic practice from the College of Paramedics. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the College of Paramedics Insights podcast series. We're very grateful to our colleagues Tim and Claire from the Fencast podcast series who are joining us this afternoon for a discussion around uh, the issues and challenges in the response pre-hospital to COVID-19 so far. The podcast is in two parts. Uh, first, Tim and Claire will be having a quite detailed discussion about some of the uh, known information that we have about COVID uh, up to this time on the 1st of May. And then Steve and I will join them for a discussion around some of the questions that uh, people have sent in to us. So without further ado, I will hand you over to Tim and Claire. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Femcast. We very much apologise that it's been so long, uh, but some funny stuff's been happening in the world and we're here to have a brief conversation about it. It's worth mentioning that we are recording this podcast on May the 1st and therefore the content of this podcast is timestamped to that. Uh, As you'll be very aware, the progression of knowledge around COVID is changing on a daily basis. And therefore, what we're telling you now may turn out not to be accurate in a few days, weeks or even months time. So remember that May the 1st. And if you're listening to this more than probably 24 hours after May the 1st, you need to go back and check the literature and see what's occurred since then. We're going to use a framework to for our discussion today, we want to briefly talk about uh, coronavirus and, and what it is. And then we really want to focus on how you look after yourself during these times, what the case definition is and how you might identify patients. Importantly, which patients are low risk and how we might risk stratify patients in their own home. And then at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, PPE and aerosol generating procedures. So, Claire, can you tell me a little bit about coronavirus? (laughs) So we'll start off with the case definition as it stands. And in order to have a clinical diagnosis of coronavirus, you need to have either acute respiratory distress syndrome or a high temperature of 37.8 degrees or more and either a persistent cough, hoarseness, nasal discharge or congestion, shortness of breath, sore throat, wheezing or sneezing. And that's a pretty broad definition, but that's what we're currently using for patients in the UK who present with suspected coronavirus. We know, however, that it's also a really broad spectrum of disease. And although that's the current case definition, patients might present with a number of other um, symptoms. So we know that there are patients who are asymptomatic, that they might have a more mild illness with non-specific things like myalgia and malaise. There's a really well-reported symptom of not being able to smell or taste in the patients who suffer with coronavirus and people who I've spoken to personally who've had it have definitely expressed that symptom and there are some less common presentations like diarrhea or GI symptoms and more rarely a COVID encephalopathy. Uh, We also know that there's different severities of disease. About 80% of patients have a relatively mild or moderate illness 
Um, 15% can be acutely unwell with more severe symptoms and about 5% go on to have a more critical illness. And I don't think we've really got a great hold of those numbers at the moment, have we? So testing strategies vary from country to country and there's very few epidemiological background studies which tell us what the rate of asymptomatic coronavirus is. We know from the China data that up to 70% of the children there had got it and were asymptomatic. Uh, And, you know, we're at the moment, particularly in the UK, focusing our testing strategy on people with symptoms, which means we're not testing people who are asymptomatic. So in terms of where those percentages are, I think it's really difficult to judge in terms of morbidity and mortality. We know, I think, that it's worse than flu, uh, but just how much worse it is will only come out over over time. Yep, absolutely. In terms of risk factors, um, there are a few groups of patients who seem to um, be more likely to suffer the more critical um, end of the spectrum. So if you're older, you're at higher risk, which is true of most um, diseases, uh, certainly over 50 and a substantially increased risk over 70 I'm afraid the men do less well than the women. Um, If you're obese and if you have comorbidities, particularly cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disease um, and chronic respiratory disease, then you are at increased risk. And there's also a recognised increased risk in black and ethnic minority community groups. So we're seeing some variation across our population as to who gets more ill from coronavirus. Uh, I just want to nip back to the case definition for a second, if I can, because I I know where there has been some confusion is around the pyrexia aspect of it. So uh, the case definition says a temperature over 37.8. And a common question we get asked is, what if they've not got a temperature now because they've just had a couple of paracetamol, uh, but they report fevers, rigors and chills overnight, or if they've recorded their own temperature at home and it's high What's been your 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 take on that? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And in some of the literature, it describes a fever as a more general symptom rather than giving that defined temperature. So I think we've taken a pragmatic view that if that is reported within the last 24 hours, then we'll take that as a positive. Um, I've done some interesting work with the ambulance service recently where I've been calling staff back who've had um, tests done and just discussing with them the symptoms that they've been experiencing. Um, The temperature one does seem to be the one that we come back to. I think everybody likes black and white definitions, so it is hard. But yeah, we've been taking that that pragmatic view of within the last 24 hours, and we're counting it if the patient reports it as a self-measured thing too. Okay, so uh, if we get called to see one of these patients at home, can you just quickly remind us what the case definition is? So we've talked about pyrexia. Yep, so it's a high temperature and at least one of a cough, and that can be with or without sputum, but it does seem to be that people are reporting a dry cough. And then hoarseness, nasal discharge or congestion, shortness of breath, sore throat, wheezing or sneezing. So many things. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and really similar to lots of other illnesses that are around at the moment, like hay fever, for example. Okay, fine. So we've talked briefly about what the uh, the, the public health definition of the condition is, uh, and we've talked briefly about the morbidity and mortality associated with it. Um, what about the well ones? When we go to someone's house, how can we safely leave them at home? 
So when I was preparing the sort of blog contents for this podcast, I was looking through the specialty specific guidance that um, NHS England have produced. And it's really useful to look at not just the specialty specific guidance for your own specialty. So for me, emergency medicine um, and ambulance services, but actually to look at the ones either side. And because I work in both, I've obviously looked at both and I'll, we'll put a link on, on the blog. But there's a really useful um, flowcharts in the emergency medicine um, guidance which allows you to try and risk stratify these patients and it's helpfully coloured in a traffic like system. So looking at the document the reference guide for emergency medicine it relies on this initial gestalt I suppose around whether we think this is a respiratory illness or whether it's not and we've talked about the cough the cold the flu-like symptoms categorising someone into that category. It then divides patients in a binary fashion to not seriously ill or seriously ill and we're interested in this discussion around the not seriously ill patients because these are the patients we can hopefully leave at home for safety netting and potentially further community assessments. It's interesting in that this tool was produced uh, some time ago now and it relies on the National Early Warning Score which is used in some ambulance services in, in the country. Now, it's interesting that the new score hasn't been validated in this particular condition. And if you imagine you're seeing someone with a respiratory condition, you'd expect their respiratory rate to be raised. We've talked about them having a pyrexia. So it's very easy for them to score the news cutoff. So they're saying that patients who are well have a news of 0, 1 or 2. To put that into context, news of five or above is commonly used as a screening for severe infection and sepsis. So these patients really do need to be quite well not to justify further assessment. Yep, and one of the most useful elements of the criteria we found is the saturations. The patients that you'll have seen will often describe really quite profound shortness of breath. That seems to develop a little bit into the illness so maybe around day five six or seven where they are starting to feel breathless when they're like going upstairs or doing fairly minimal exertion and that might well be when they call for additional help whether that's 111 and then an ambulance gets dispatched to them or directly to 999 that's the group of patients i think that it's really worth doing some um, exercise testing on so that you can measure their saturations after they've moved around a bit I've certainly seen a couple of patients who've been lying comfortably on a trolley and I've kind of been like, yeah, I think you're probably okay to go home. And then you get them up and walk them around the emergency department and their SATs drop to mid 80s. So there's there's various testing schedules out there, but people are talking about a brisk walk of a minimum of 40 yards. Uh, Obviously, if a patient can't tolerate that, don't do it. Uh, And that's probably a positive test in itself. It's also worth remembering uh, about the the delay, the lag delay between um, when you finish and when you will record those oxygen saturations peripherally. So uh, the patient may maintain their SATs immediately, but you need to leave that SATs probe on for at least 90 seconds to see the full effect of of that 40 yards of exercise and any desaturation which may occur. Claire briefly mentioned that patients... Uh, we're seeing them commonly present around five to seven. It's important to understand how the disease will develop from there. And 
definitely the patients I've seen on the COVID unit have got worse between day seven and about day 10 or 11 and then tend to get better. So it's almost like bronchi kids where you can say, oh, you're on day five. It's probably not going to get any worse from this. If you're seeing a patient with coronavirus on day five or suspected coronavirus, then there is the potential that they are going to get worse. The illness isn't at its at its peak at that point. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really useful because most people, if you get a flu-like illness, you you anticipate that by day maybe four, you should start to feel better. And what I've noticed with this group of patients is they're feeling worse at that point and they probably still aren't at their worst um, stage. So uh, some reassurance when you explain that to people, they're like, oh, fine. OK, so I've, I need to I might feel a bit worse, but then I'll start to feel better after that. I'm like, yeah, you know, about day seven or, or between day seven or day 10, that's when people are starting to feel better. But you're also right, Tim, that that is also when they seem to be deteriorating as well. So if you're getting called as a paramedic or a technician and seeing somebody in their own home at that stage, it's really worth thinking, right, where are they on that um, disease progression ladder? And are they at the, they could still get worse phase, in which case, if you're a bit borderline about taking them in at that point, perhaps if you think they've still got time to deteriorate, those are the ones that you need to bring in versus, do you know what, they're day 10, they feel rubbish. They've been properly breathless for a few days. They should be getting better at that point. Yeah, and I I think uh, it's probably worth mentioning now that not everyone who's breathless at the moment has got COVID. And that's something we've seen again and again and again, people being bis, uh, not bis-diagnosed, misdiagnosed <laughs> with, with, with COVID because they meet the case definition and in fact have got uh, a belly full of pus or have got a massive pulmonary embolism or have got common or garden pneumonia or flu A. Um, and it's really important to remember that our, our job is beyond ruling in or ruling out COVID and risk stratifying for them. We do need to have, not even at the back of the mind, at the forefront of the mind, all the other conditions which make patients breathless. Because for most of the country, if not all of the country now, those other conditions are going to be far more frequent to cause the case definition than COVID itself. Yeah, and that's true. We've seen um, a real dip in the attendances in emergency departments and, and lots of ambulance services have seen a reduction in their um, calls. And that is worrying because there's probably some patients who in the past would have called us for help or had attended an emergency department and are staying at home because they're frightened or because they're trying to help the NHS and actually they've got a disease which needs our attention. So I think if you are a health professional more generally, it's useful to support people in uh, encouraging them to attend the uh, or, or to seek medical attention if they are unwell for any reason. Um, and we can then make a decision on whether or not they come to hospital or, or indeed stay in hospital, because it's a scary time for our non-health professional members of the population as well as ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I think that's a really good link into, so so how do we uh, take care of our, ourselves at this point? And I think there's a real and appropriate fear amongst healthcare professionals that we're exposing ourselves to coronavirus on a regular basis. Uh, some of us are, and, and the additional risk that that comes with. Um, have you got any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, I have. So I'm really lucky. We're lucky that we work in an organisation where we've got a really good um, collegiate spirit amongst our emergency department staff. And um, 
and that has been hugely important. I've actually found myself in a situation where you know, most of the country is staying at home, working from home, homeschooling. And I've been feeling quite fortunate that I've been allowed to, to go out to work, that I have one of those key worker roles that means I do get to go to work. I also am very aware that I work in an area of the country where we've been relatively spared, at least so far. And um, we haven't had the significant exposures that some of our colleagues in the rest of the country have had. So I think it's worth just saying, you know, I know that my experience isn't everybody's experience and I'm not making anybody else's, you know, um, I'm not judging anybody else's reactions to their to their experience. I've also found that I've been back in touch with a, a bunch of my friends from university who I had, who I see, you know, infrequently and are good friends, but we haven't necessarily um, always been in touch on a regular basis. And we've kind of started seeing each other via Zoom um, much more often than we would have done pre pre pandemic. So there's been some positives to come out of it. And for me, that's that's my um, safety network. My family and my friends are the people who have kept me sane and I think we've all had bad days um but on in answer to that then I generally bake um I think more <laughs> seriously uh it's probably worth thinking about how people feel about PPE do you want to talk about that a bit yeah I I, I just wanted to pick up as well that uh, I think there is uh, a perhaps an understanding which might not be correct that healthcare professionals are being disproportionately affected by this disease. And I think we really need to be cautious of the rumour mill around this as well. I remember when COVID was first kicking off in the UK, there was many stories of, you know, young intensivists being intubated. There was many stories of, you know, whole departments of emergency staff falling ill. And Whenever those have been dug into, there's been found to be no truth behind them. My understanding of the literature uh, as it stands on the 1st of May is that the morbidity and mortality we're seeing amongst healthcare professionals is approximately equal to that of the general population. And importantly, those healthcare professionals who have been affected on the whole are working in areas which haven't got high exposure to COVID in terms of their working environment. Some people have concluded from that that it's unlikely that these healthcare professionals who have been affected have caught it from work and are more likely, their, their risk profile, if you like, more reflects that of the general population. And that's where they may have got it, out in their normal social environment rather than the workplace itself. And I think there is something that comes from if you work in that environment, you know, because we work on a corona unit for some of our time, we're probably very well versed in how to wear our PPE. We've probably got the donning and doffing down to a T. We've probably got more rigorous procedures in terms of how we interact with members of the public outside of the corona units. We've probably got more rigorous procedures. I know that uh, when I get home, I've almost got a, sounds very sad, but almost like a, a home doffing procedure where you know, certain stuff goes in the bag and into the washing machine and I go and have a shower and all those sorts of things before I say hello or hi to any of my family members. And I think having access to PPE, using it frequently so you're familiar with it and the effect that has on you know, your daily routines probably gives a very significant degree of protection above people who are not regularly exposed to it. So... Whilst we're talking about 
looking after ourselves. Shall we talk briefly around PPE? And I think there's been quite a lot of confusion here. And I think a lot of it's to do with nomenclature as well. So uh, I know there's green PPE, amber PPE, red PPE. I know there's FFP3. I don't know if there's FFP2, FFP4. There's droplet, there's aerosol. What's your take on it? Oh, that was beautifully introduced. Thanks so much. Um, Good. So we'll link to some stuff from the blog because there's loads and loads and loads of content available on these subjects. I think the generally accepted term from Public Health England is level two and level three PPE. So that should be something that everybody has at least heard of. What some organisations have chosen to do is then to interpret that into colours or uh, different descriptions in order to make it easier to understand for the people who are working in those organisations. So your own local organisation might use different terms, but you'll probably be able to equate it back to, to what we're talking about. So at the moment, the level two PPE required for a patient, for all patients that we come into contact with who might have COVID-19 is a surgical mask, which has to be droplet resistant, a plastic apron and a pair of gloves and eye protection. I think eye protection, at least in hospital, is judged to be on a case by case basis. Uh, it's something which I commonly wear Um because I've definitely had patients who cough and sneeze and those sorts of things when I'm not expecting it. So uh, I'm, I'm routinely wearing eye protection when I'm seeing these patients. And then the level three PPE is for patients who are um, known to have COVID-19 or for any aerosol generating procedures. And we'll go into what those are in just a second. Um, and that is the FP3 mask, a visor, and a fluid repellent coverall or gown with gloves. And depending on your FFP3 mask, some of them haven't got droplet protection, have they? So they've got a valve on the front. So you need to wear a droplet protective mask over the top. And I think it's just, it's really important that you get familiar with the PPE that you're using locally. And in, in my hospital, the there's been some variation in what's been available and there's been you know a new mask at some time and then a different type of mask at another time and it's really important that you're completely familiar with the kit that you've got what its capabilities are uh, what its capabilities aren't of course and and when and where you should be using it because um, we've had to be quite flexible with that and i think that's appropriate and fine but it is a case of people taking individual responsibility for knowing what kit they have available and being familiar with its usage. Yeah, so let's think about aerosol generating procedures for a second then. And is it worth just going through what those are and how they've been defined? So they're defined by procedures which are thought to generate aerosols. <laughs> good, good. And who has decided what they are? Uh, I, there is definitely some controversy around some of the procedures uh, I think the main one being uh, chest compressions in cardiac arrest. And there has been a difference of opinion in interpreting the literature between uh, the Research Council and other groups. And the Research Council believe that we should be wearing FFP3 for that process, that procedure. And the other groups are saying that uh, level 2 PPE, a, a, a surgical mask and uh, gown or, or apron are appropriate 
Yeah, and so I dug into this. I was really interested to understand how this difference of opinion had occurred. And it's challenging because uh, we've never had to ask this question in as much detail as we do now. And it's never been as relevant to as many healthcare professionals. And if you look back, a lot of the evidence is based on previous respiratory viral infections, uh, none of which have been quite as widespread as coronavirus. So it's never needed to be a question that's been answered in as much detail or indeed so many of us have been interested in the answer as for this illness. Just to go through the ones that are agreed as aerosol generating procedures, it's airway interventions, um, intubation, um, supraglottic airway device insertion, any airway um, manipulation is a aerosol generating procedure as is suction um, and if you're manually ventilating a patient, that would count. And if you're also managing the airway in terms of foreign body and removal, then that would also count as an aerosol generating procedure. The other one that's more relevant perhaps to us in hospital is, is non-invasive ventilation. So whether, whether that's BiPAP or CPAP or high flow nasal oxygen, all of those would constitute a aerosol generating procedure. Yeah, I, I think there's different interpretations of the literature, isn't it? Obviously, aerosols can be generated by any kind of pressurised air or oxygen crossing any liquid surface. So you can imagine that a lot of procedures do potentially generate a very small degree of aerosolization. But there's a big difference between that and that aerosol spreading to the point where it could affect a healthcare professional or give that healthcare professional a higher risk than the background population. And I think that's where the slight difference of opinion has come from, in that, from my understanding, there is not any evidence that healthcare professionals have caught or have got an excess morbidity from coronavirus from delivering chest compressions to patients with coronavirus. There is that evidence for things like intubation. So I think if your standard is is there evidence that the healthcare professionals are at increased risk, then you would say that uh, level two PPE was appropriate. If your standard is, are any aerosols generated during this procedure at all, then effectively, many, many things can generate aerosols because it's any pressurised gas moving across a, a, a liquid surface. And you can imagine that happening with coughing and sneezing and all the procedures that we've talked about. And in that case, you could say that perhaps chest compressions are associated with an aerosol. Uh, and I think that's where the difficulty is. Um, I have to say, I am confident in the guidelines that we have. I'm confident in the PPE that we're issued with. I'm confident that my buddies are looking after me. And I'm confident in my interpretation of literature around working in a system which is aware that coronavirus exists and aware of the potential morbidity and mortality that we can keep safe by following the correct procedures. Yeah, and, and from a cardiac arrest point of view, there's a really pragmatic answer to this, which is that at the earliest opportunity, practitioners should be donning level three PPE, but that there should not be a delay to patient care while that PPE is donned. So if the first person is wearing level two PPE and they make a start and the Rhesus Council have said, just put some defib pads on and, and, and shock if needed, um, maybe do some initial CPR while you're waiting for the rest of your team to arrive in their level three and then you can withdraw. And that seems like a really pragmatic, sensible strategy to me. 
Um, just worth mentioning, I think, while we're talking about aerosol generating procedures, that nebulization is not one. There was quite a lot of concern in the early phase about whether or not it was. It does generate aerosols, but they come from the nebulizer liquid rather than from the patient themselves. So one of the questions we got asked on Twitter before we um, kind of wrap up is about myocarditis and how patients with COVID-19 might present with myocarditis. Uh, we've done a bit of reading. We've had a little look around. There are, are some nice guidelines on acute myocardial injury in patients with suspected or confirmed COVID. And I'll link those from the blog post. Um, Tim, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Uh, I initially came uh, across this as a phenomenon in some literature from the States reporting patients who had been weaned from ventilators uh, kind of a short time after having catastrophic cardiac collapse and subsequent death. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was in the context of many days down the line so if you imagine people are getting sick between day five to ten they go into the ventilator the median time on a ventilator depending on where you look at is somewhere between 12 and 20 days so a significant amount of time compared to normal intensive care patients and then they're coming off the ventilator and that's where this presumed this cardiac collapse from presumed myocarditis is is occurring and um, i think it's important to be aware of it in post-COVID patients, so patients who are perhaps in day 12, 15 to 20 of their illness, if they're getting chest pain, it may well be myocarditis. So these might be patients who've been discharged uh, in speech marks well uh, back to community. Uh, I think we're unlikely to see it as a significant presenter in the absence of any other symptoms for people's first presentation um, matching the case definition, if you like. Yeah, and from an in-hospital point of view, we are using troponin as one of our risk stratification tools. So we are measuring troponin in patients with suspected COVID. But in terms of presenting to the ambulance service as their primary complaint, I think it's a really good point about the patients who've been discharged and then subsequently develop uh, chest pain. But it's probably unlikely to be a part of that initial uh, case presentation. Agreed. But just remember that you know, COVID seems to be able to present with anything from not being able to smell, to chest pain, to diarrhoea, to vomiting, to you know many, many things. So keep an open mind when you're assessing these patients. And also remember that myocardial infarctions and enstemis and all this other sort of stuff is still out there. Cool. Um, I think that wraps up most of the stuff we wanted to talk about uh, in this section of the podcast. So we hope you found that useful. Please do go and have a look on the blog. Um, I'll link to lots of the other documents around and there's some, a couple of good donning and doffing videos which might be of use if uh, if you haven't had a great deal of training or experience, particularly with the level three PPE. Perfect. Excellent. I think Claire and I now have to shoot off to a Zoom meeting. I'm sure you could track coronavirus by the number of Zoom meetings for, you have to attend and the number of WhatsApp messages you're getting. But uh, that's not been validated. <laughs> it's great to talk to you all again. We'll be back again soon. Hello and welcome to a joint podcast between FEMCAST and the College of Paramedics Insight podcast. My name's Gary Strong. I am delighted to introduce a small panel to you today who will be discussing a lot of issues that we've been asked around uh, COVID and practicing during COVID. Uh, I'm going to let these guys introduce themselves. Um, first of all, uh, um, Claire. Hi, my name is Claire Basanko. I'm a consultant in emergency medicine. I also work as a pre-hospital critical care doctor 
uh, in the southwest and i'm one of the team who produces femcast thank you uh my name's tim and i'm very much the same my background's emergency medicine and pre-hospital emergency medicine and i work with claire on femcast and uh, my name's steve steve mokes and i'm a paramedic and i also work in the southwest of england Thank you, team. Uh, so I'm, we, we've got some questions, uh, some of which were uh, sent in to us via Twitter, some of which have come up as we've been uh, discussing things amongst ourselves. Uh, and we're going to kick these around and hope that you find this useful. Uh, one of the questions that's been coming up so much really has been the question of the effect of wearing PPE uh, all the time on our bandwidth as individuals, on our uh, resource management with one another on our teamwork and, and perhaps on our clinical skills as well so I, i'm going to start with steve because you've been out there uh, practicing as a paramedic working hard the last couple of weeks and, and i know you've done a lot of shifts how has it been for you in ppe yeah i i think yeah, to begin with it, it certainly was a significant change and whilst we've always been mindful of infection control just sort of the concept of turning up at incidents and actually having to don on your your PPE to begin with before perhaps uh, grabbing your response bag and, and responding to, to whatever is in front of you. And again, obviously, the different level of, of PPEs and, and that there's been mixed advice around that. And, and it, once you sort of establish what it is you, you're going to wear, um, then I guess it becomes part of the routine with your, your gloves and your masks and, uh, and your apron. And I think also your patients are, are very accepting of it and I, I i really have noticed patients and relatives have been quite cautious about when we go into a property and have even on some occasions said would you like me to wait in a different room while you deal with whoever the patient might be um so i think sort of acceptance and and it's you've got more used to it as things have gone on but you can't deny the fact it is also very different it's quite hard to to perhaps build up that therapeutic relationship when you're behind a mask and, and goggles uh, and sort of also elderly patients who may even be hard of hearing and you're, you're muffling your voice through a mask and that, that that can be difficult. And then I think obviously moving on with if you're in sort of what we call level three PP with your, your um, Tyvek suit and perhaps your powered hood, then that, that does take it to a completely different level in terms of, of how you interact with both with your your colleagues your crewmates you're trying to perhaps manage a scene or an incident and and speak to each other and it's about making sure your your instructions are clearly heard um and and that everybody knows what they're doing and also sort of being mindful of your own fatigue um with the gear and although you know the powered hoods uh, recirculate the air quite effectively you know, those those suits are not not breathable and you know with gloves on as well it, you can um start becoming quite quite fatigued so that that's a factor and then I think you know as I sort of briefly alluded to the emotional side of things when you're dealing perhaps with bereavement or, or very unwell patients that you lose some of that personal contact that perhaps you you previously had with with relatives because you just seem disconnected um with with the the PP that you're wearing really yeah I think they're they're really good points uh i've uh, found it particularly uh, difficult dealing with my colleagues in ppe and i find that everyone regardless of their body habitus regardless of their skin color regardless of their voice or how they hear uh, well sorry what they sound like just looks and sounds exactly the same when they're wearing ppe 
and the number of times I've offended colleagues is uh, <laughs> beyond reproach, really. Um, uh, just uh, so I find it really useful if people got name tags, big name tags. I've seen that some hospitals have been printing out pictures of themselves smiling and sticking that on the front of their PPE, which is which I think is a fantastic start. Um, I've tried to introduce myself to patients and said, you know, I know I'm wearing this mask, but behind it, I am smiling. Please try to imagine that. And I find that that works really well. But the time I, I find it most difficult is in that multi-team situation where everyone's looking the same. Uh, and we find it difficult at the best of times when eye contact's easy, when everyone's wearing their name badge, but add a level of PP to that. And it does get that little bit more fractious, that little bit more complicated. I think I would like to share an observation that one of my colleagues made from the air ambulance the other day. So we were just having an informal chat and he said, um, oh, I was at this cardiac arrest the other day and yeah, it all went okay and we all went up to hospital, but it wasn't, it was only when we got to hospital and all took off our PPE that we realised we all knew each other. Um, and that is the level of anonymousness it creates. I would also like to echo Steve's thoughts about how you empathise with patients. I We've had to have, I think, a few more um, resuscitation chats with patients. Perhaps we should always have been having them, and we'll come on to that in a second. But I felt that when I was talking to patients about resuscitation, not being able to use my facial expressions to indicate that I realised this was a difficult conversation and to try and show some of that empathy was really hard. I found myself really finding it quite emotionally difficult to have those conversations with patients where I felt I wasn't really able to interact with them. Um, but on the flip side, the patients just seem to have taken it within their stride. And, and I really haven't had any situations where I felt that the patient hasn't understood what I've been saying as a result. That's actually um, very encouraging, Claire, because I, I, I may have missed it, but I don't think there's been much in the way of campaigns to warn people about the PPE uh, that just seem to have accepted that we've got to look after ourselves uh, that's good um, one of the questions we have been asked uh, which is kind of PPE related is um, whether we're actually uh, if we're going into somebody's home and there's potential COVID there whether we're actually spreading it from one place to another uh, and the worst side of this has been some of the negativity I think that uh, pre-hospital uh, care as, as faced from, from people perhaps not understanding uh, what we're up to. Tim, could you, you comment a little bit about this sort of spread of infection? Because, um, you know, obviously we don't want to do it um, and we're doing our best to minimise it. What, what would be your thoughts? Um, I, I think that's really interesting. And, it, and it's being aware of what the different types of PEP are for and who they're to protect. So the the kind of stuff above the neck, if you like, uh, that's to protect us as individuals immediately from getting coronavirus. So it's to stop droplets spread into our eyes or it's to stop us in inhaling an aerosol or, or inhaling a droplet. The rest of the stuff is really to protect our family, our friends and the next patient that we see. So that's the purpose of your, your gown or, or your suit or, or your apron. And the idea of that is that it does get infected it does become a transmitting agent but we can then take that off and put it in the bin and then wear something clean for the next patient so it's, it's important that if our uniform does get uh, stained if you like if our uniform does get exposed that we're considering that as part of our PPE and, and changing regularly and certainly when I'm in the emergency department I'm changing into green operating style scrubs 
and I'm making sure that if there is any uh, fluid contact, which you'd rather avoid, that I'm getting changed and they're going into in, into the hot industrial style wash. So that stuff kind of above our neck, that's to protect us. The stuff below is to protect the transmission to the next patient and the next patient and the next patient. And we need to be particularly cautious of that when we look at things like uh, stethoscopes. So you might use that to examine the chest of one patient and might not consider cleaning it before examining the next patient. And there are, you know, big transmitters of infection, things like mobile phones, which we get out to check, uh, the radios that we use to communicate, all these pieces of kit which move from patient to patient, which haven't necessarily got a cleaning schedule associated with them. That's where we need to be particularly cautious. I'm interested to know, and Steve, you might be able to answer this better, because I completely um, agree with your point, Tim, about the the, the role of the PPE and, and, and how it functions. But also the comment about scrubs is easy for those of us who are working in hospital. But from a paramedic point of view, obviously, you know, you're not able to change your uniform between patients, certainly. And, and we're not in hospital. We're, we're changing them from one shift to another. But from a... Um, proximity to the patient point of view are you tending to try and have one person who gets within the sort of two meter distance and one um, who stays away are you trying to sort of minimize exposure to that to the team like that yeah absolutely and and you know one of the approaches that that we are taking is is even where one member of the the ambulance crew stays in the ambulance and just one clinician will go in initially uh, and still sort of maintain uh, a reasonable distance just to do that initial look assessment, try and get some, some history and then make a decision as to do, do I need a second clinician in here to assist me with this patient or is this something I can probably manage on my own? So that's one approach we've been using. But on, on those cases where, where perhaps both crew members enter a, a property, for example, then absolutely one will, will maintain a, a, a sensible distance and perhaps focus on passing equipment or completing the documentation and then the other clinician will uh, make that initial assessment and then only only go close to the patient as you say to perhaps listen to a chest or, or perform blood pressure and, and those sort of observations. It's a real challenge isn't it because uh, as the uh, response to COVID got underway uh, I was thinking about this and then thinking about how uh, people operate in in uh, general practice in the primary care world where quite often you will sit a few feet away from somebody and spend all your time getting a history and may not need to touch the patient at all and I thought this, this, this is a real good opportunity just to um, emphasize the importance of history taking but of course uh, the, the thing that skewed that uh, for me was the, the sudden realization that actually you absolutely have to get uh, an oxygen saturation reading in most patients um, any comments on that from you guys? I, I have seen some international protocols where people are um, almost uh, going into a patient's porch or entrance hall and leaving the monitoring equipment and then asking the patient to come out and apply it and then reading the results remotely rather than having any contact with the patient at all. Um, and, and you can imagine that actually for a significant number of patients being actually a you know, relatively practical, pragmatic way to proceed. The oxygen saturations do seem to be uh, the crux of of, of our um, differentiation procedures uh, and, and, and an important part of it. And anything you can do remotely seems to make sense. 
I've done some work in the hub um, at Ambulance Control in the last few weeks. And one of the things that I've noticed is when you're talking on the phone with somebody who's a suspected COVID patient, you can quite often understand quite a lot about how breathless they are just from how they sound. And it does feel as if we could potentially develop a tool that allows us, based on taking a history over the phone, listening to them speaking over the phone with the addition of some SATs, perhaps um, related to some form of exercise, uh, you know, whether that's going up the stairs or, or something simpler like getting out of a chair, it does feel as if you could risk stratify this patient over the phone with something simple as a SATs probe. So I don't think we've ended up having to uh, progress to that in, in this country, certainly not currently with the number of cases we've seen in terms of having to try and develop a tool for leaving patients at home. But one of the questions we had was about screening um, patients over the phone and it, it, it's reasonably I don't know how reliable my assessments have been because I haven't measured to see what happens to the patients but it, when you talk to somebody you can get a really good sense of how unwell they are from how they're speaking to you and how breathless they are a bit like you would do when you were risk stratifying an asthma patient in terms of numbers of words in a sentence. That's really helpful Claire thank you I guess from from lots of conversations you, you, you're tuning your ears to um, what's normal breathing for that person and, and what might not be such normal breathing and there's, there's, there's mileage for some work there isn't there and uh, I think that asthma analogy is really um, really strong actually I've seen a number of um, of COVID patients who've turned out to be positive or query COVID that turned out to be positive and their presentation is very much like asthma without the wheeze and they are as Claire very very nicely described uh, breathless they're unable to complete sentences but they've got none of the classic wheeze or you know the classic creps of heart failure or even the florid symptoms of infection they're just breathless and and that whole asthma analogy does 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 hold true for at least in, in my limited experience of these patients I think that will be very useful to, to those listeners who are uh, still sort of you know, trying to figure out how, how do I uh, work through an assessment because you know, COVID's a challenge, isn't it? There are some some classic symptoms, but there are a lot of um, uh, non um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for presentations that are, are sort of out of the ordinary, uh, being reported all the time. And uh, we should we should mention at, at this point that um, you know we're talking on the, on the first of May, 2020. The knowledge of how COVID works uh, is progressing all the time, and everything that we say is valid today there's a chance it might not be valid tomorrow so please do um you know, uh, take everything we say uh, it's extremely um helpful uh, what, what what my colleagues are saying here but just a, a word of caution on the date mm-hmm. uh, moving on to a, a different question and claire's mentioned this briefly uh, we, we've been asked about end of life care uh, and uh, Claire's talking about those difficult conversations about resuscitation which were even more difficult when you're wearing ppe um, I'd, I'd like to ask uh, you folks what, what's been your experience of end of life conversations. Uh, my my own impression is that the COVID has emphasised certainly in the paramedic world something that we we felt we needed to get better at anyway. All our training really has been historically about reversing a sudden cardiac arrest and the need to differentiate between a sudden survivable cardiac arrest and what is a, a natural end of life uh, which needs a different type of care so um, be really 
value your thoughts on that one. Okay, so I'll jump in, but I, I think the others, uh, I'm sure, are going to have something to add to. I think at the beginning of this um, pandemic, I got together with some of my girlfriends on um, Zoom with that I went to university with, and clearly I went to medical school, and so this was a bunch of doctors. And we've all gone in different directions. There's probably about half of us are GPs, and the rest of us are a mixed bag of hospital specialties. But one of the things that the GPs were talking about, and, and this has been repeated when I've discussed this with my GP colleagues locally, is that it's brought to the fore a reminder of the need to have conversations with patients. It's, this hasn't gone down that well in social media and, and in the media because it's a really difficult conversation to have on a population scale. But what my colleagues and my friends have discussed is the importance of actually reaching out to their patients and this has precipitated doing quite a lot of that so reaching out to patients having conversations with them and their families and understanding what those people would have wanted in any circumstances um, it's just that the pandemic has brought that to people's minds I think so it has given us a bit of an opportunity to to consider how we um, prepare for a deterioration in somebody's um, living and a, as you say, the inevitable end of their life rather than a sudden cardiac arrest, which should be reversed. So that's been my observation is that I think it probably has reminded us to have these conversations. Certainly in the emergency department, one of the things that our inpatient colleagues have asked us to do is to please have these conversations with patients when they arrive, even when they aren't critically ill, but just so that we can have it recorded as they arrive in hospital so that we don't have to make snap decisions later. And indeed, so that we don't expose people unnecessarily to, and when I say people, I mean staff, so we don't unnecessarily expose staff to resuscitation if that isn't what is in the patient's best interests or what the patient would have wanted. And, uh, you know, I've had hundreds, if not thousands of these conversations, and it's it's like one of those things, like, you know, your first cannula is different, uh, difficult, sorry, your thousandth cannula is, is, is very much easier. And occasionally you get one which is really awkward. And that's, that's my experience of delivering these, of, of having these conversations with patients, that the more you do, the more comfortable you get the language, the more you can put your patients at ease. And I think it's one thing that, that there's many things that coronavirus has taught us and many areas of practice which have improved as a result. And the routine of having these conversations with patients is definitely um, part of the new normal, I'd say, and and a, a, a an important uh, COVID-specific uh, practice that we need to continue with. Um, I appreciate these conversations are, are rarely happening initially in the pre-hospital environment for paramedics, though the more uh, extended skills paramedics we see and the more paramedics we see working in primary care type roles, the more important it's going to be to be familiar with how to have these conversations. For very, very few patients does it come as a surprise and for very, very few patients have they not actually thought about it. And I found, you know, the patients are excellent at putting me at ease during these conversations, just as I hope I'm reasonably skilled at helping them out as well. That's incredibly helpful, Tim and, and Claire. Thank you. Um, Steve, have you, have you had any experience recently where those conversations have just, you know, it's either happened or it's not happened, but you wished it had in, in patient encounters as a paramedic? Yeah, I, th- I think a, a case that sort of particularly springs to mind is, is 
the the patient who was terminally ill and was end of life care but their respiratory symptoms that they developed were new and not related to that underlying terminal illness so i think from a family's perspective um and possibly even the patients that they they'd come to terms with the fact that you know they they were terminally ill and, and they would die but their view was because of a, a respiratory illness of possible covid you know could that be reversed was that you know we, we almost like they they didn't want to die of, of of covid they but they expected to die of their underlying cancer and that that was quite a, a a tricky sort of conversation to have really because it was like really trying to refer them back to well what was the plan and what were your wishes and what would you like to happen you know versus the options of where well, we could go to hospital and you know they might be able to to provide you with support and so that that was a bit tricky um so i think you know as both claire and tim have said it, it's about those conversations and and discussions with the patient and with the family that that are so important and and clearly if if that's happened prior to the ambulance arriving then so much um easier really yeah thank you and i guess the the there's also uh, the question of what's going to happen if I go to hospital uh, versus what's going to happen if I stay home. And it's, 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 you know, you can answer some of the practicalities around that, but, but not, uh, you know, you, we can't predict uh, particularly with COVID. I, I think you raise an interesting point there, which is, which is something I'd be keen to uh, understand more. Um, in the emergency department, we've seen a significant decrease in demand or until at least this week decrease in demand for other what we consider life-threatening pathologies for example um and myocardial infarctions life-threatening asthma uh, left ventricular failure ccf those sorts of things um, and i've seen a number of patients recently who've said you know i really didn't want to come to hospital no matter what because of covid because of coronavirus um have you had that same experience pre-hospitally Stephen? Yes absolutely I I think in terms of sort of core volume it certainly hasn't felt um, as busy and several patients when you arrive uh, are, are obviously pleased to see you but are very much relieved if you are able to say to them I don't think we need to take you to hospital or or often they're saying well please don't take me in if I don't have to can't you kind of make me better here and I think there is that that fear um, amongst the public and patients that I, I can't go to hospital because of COVID or if I go in there, I'll, I'll get COVID. And so trying to sort of reassure people that actually our hospitals have got excellent processes in place and really are looking after um, patients in separate areas in, in most cases as well is is been a real key point to make to those patients that, um you really feel clinically need to be in a hospital uh, receiving treatment. And I think it's just worth really pointing out um, that just because a patient's got a respiratory illness, it may not be COVID. Um, and when we're thinking about whether or not patients need an ambulance or indeed need to go to hospital or indeed need to be admitted, remembering that there are other pathologies around, which actually increasingly are going to be more common than COVID, at least um, for the medium term, perhaps, perhaps we'll see some uh, increasing cases again depending on the isolation plans, 
you know, it may not be that this patient's got COVID and they may really need IV antibiotics. So some patients really do need to go to hospital and need to be uh, encouraged to do so if that's required. That's a great point, Claire. Thank you. And uh, the other thing that um, I was thinking about while Stephen was talking there is, I guess, the stresses and strains on us as health professionals in dealing with all these um, alterations, I suppose, in the way we do things that the more and more frequent difficult conversations, difficulty of having those conversations in PPE, the the emotional moment when perhaps you take somebody away from their family and you know they may not see them again, happening more often than it used to. I guess what I'm leading up to is I'd I'd really like everybody's thoughts on uh, questions of of moral injury and the emotional and psychological and and mental impact of of working during a pandemic. how are we doing? What are your experiences and, 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 and what are your tips for us to um, you know, stay stay strong and, and be able to do the, the work we do? I think it's useful for us to have this conversation and I, and I hate people are having these conversations with their colleagues everywhere. There's no doubt that having um, a network of people who you can talk to um, about both COVID and also not COVID is really important. And I found at the beginning that the number of WhatsApp messages I got was really a kind of overwhelming as everybody just tried to process uh, what was going on that we've perhaps got a little bit more used to it now and that does seem to have calmed down it's really important to acknowledge that um, I saw a really interesting Twitter feed the other day about whether or not we are in fact superheroes and Sometimes it, perhaps it's not that helpful to make the analogy that the public are, are so keen to use for us in that actually superheroes tend to be people who are able to withstand anything. And clearly we're also human and it's really important to acknowledge that and to do whatever it takes to remind yourself that you're human, whether that's, um, I've been definitely making the most of the fact that I live in a really beautiful part of the world and that we've had some pretty fabulous weather recently. And uh, mm. I've also learned to garden uh, thanks to my mum and FaceTime. So having something else that you do, whatever that is for you, is important. But acknowledging that you don't necessarily have to be strong is also uh, impo- has been important for me, I think. Tim, any thoughts from you on this one? I, I couldn't uh, agree more, really. Uh, we need to look after ourselves, look after each other. But sometimes the disconnect between uh, the public's expectation and our delivery I think leaves people in a in a quandary. Uh, I think we're all grateful for how grateful people are for the NHS. Uh, but me certainly, I, I've I've worked more hours than I've done historically. But you know, uh, I've still got a job. Uh, my family are still healthy. Uh, I've still got the kind of mental and physical stimulation of being able to go to work and get satisfaction from looking after people. I actually consider myself really quite lucky. Steve, from the the, the pre-hospital perspective, um, how has it been for you? Yeah, I I mean, I I absolutely wouldn't disagree with anything that Claire or Tim has said. And and I too share exactly what Tim's just said in that I actually feel quite fortunate that I've got a routine, um, that I can go out to work, that I know I've got uh, an income to provide for my family. And I really do value that. And, and it's, it's a career, a job that I've always enjoyed and, and feel comfortable doing and, and wish to continue doing that. And 
whilst acknowledging, yes, the, the shifts might be longer or we might even be doing extra shifts at the moment, um, I kind of sort of feel that's the right thing to do in, in stepping up in that way. As, as, as you know, Gary, from conversations I've had with you previously, I am a great believer in that phrase that it's okay not to be okay. And I think that's, that's important that, that we all acknowledge that on occasions. We're all different uh, and different things will affect us in, in different ways. And it's not necessarily always the, the, the tragic cases. Um, you know, we talk of sort of compassion fatigue sometimes with patients who perhaps we feel didn't need to call us or didn't need our, our help. Um, and they can be just as, as mentally uh, taxing as, as sort of, as I say, the, the really significant traumatic cases that, that we deal with. So I think support networks are important, uh, whether that's colleagues or whether it's through uh, whatever staying well support service your organisation has, some of the charity groups or just a, a solid group of, of family and friends that you can just share how you're feeling and and have that that sort of support network there. And, and I say Claire mentioned about gardening and, it, you know, it might be a hobby or an interest like that. Um, or, or a, a, some kind of fitness activity. I think it's it's just important to just be self-aware. How am I today? How am I at this moment? And, you know, am I okay? But if I'm not okay, that that's all right. Let's let's try and uh, work through it and, and you know, lean on, on those around us if we need to. Thank you. That, that self-awareness is really important, isn't it? Because I, I, I've looked around and there, there's a huge amount of resources out there for people who feel that they're, they're struggling with their mental health a little bit. There's, there's websites, there's apps, there's phone numbers you can ring. And, and I, I sometimes think that you know, if, 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 if that was me at this point in time, I probably wouldn't feel like reading any of that stuff. But it's the self-awareness to know when things are not normal for me. And I, I think you know, the, the, the biggest step to take in getting a bit of help is the first step, uh, isn't it? And uh, those the, those resources are all good, uh, but uh, it's just having that knowledge. And uh, I think that we're all acknowledging that with our family, friends, colleagues, um, we've got a lot of support. Uh, but uh, I just want to say, you know, if you feel you need a bit of help, uh, do do follow up on this. Uh, you know, do get in touch. I think it's probably all we've got time for now. Um, I want to say a massive thank you to uh, Tim, to Stephen and to Claire for their uh, words and, and contributions to this. This will um, appear in, in two different places. Uh, so we, we hope we'll get you one way or the other, either on Femcast or on the College of Paramedics Insight podcast. But uh, it just leaves us to uh, say goodbye to you for now. So um, goodbye from me. Bye. Thanks very much for having us. Goodbye. Thank you for your time. Goodbye. Thank you. Stay safe. Paramedic Insight Podcast from the College of Paramedics.